Wow. Uh, bad days at work. Uh, as Steve and I were putting this series together, we recognized that all too often, sermon series on work talk about the good things, the eternal significance we find there. It, they don't always address the reality that sometimes work just doesn't work. And today I want to tackle uh, just exactly that theme, because for many of us, we may be in a season where work isn't working, or we may be living through multiple seasons where that isn't the case. In his hit book, Working, people talk about what they do all day and how they feel about what they do. A guy by the name of Studs Terkel, or Terkel Studs, either way, it's a weird name. A great book, but a weird name. He tells the story of a lady by the name of Nora Watson in a chapter entitled, In Search of Calling. And this is what Nora writes. My father was a preacher. I didn't like what he was doing, but it was his vocation. That was the good part of it. It wasn't just go to work in the morning and punch a time clock. It was a profession of himself. I expected my work to be just like that. Being a preacher was so important to him, he would call it the call of the Lord. He was willing to make his family live in very poor conditions. He was willing to strain his relationship to my mother, not to mention his children. He put us through an awful lot of things, including just bare survival in order to stay being a preacher. His evenings, his weekends, and his days, he was out calling on people, going out with healing oil and anointing the sick, listening to their troubles. The fact that he didn't do the same for his family is another thing. But he saw himself as the core resource in the community at a great price to himself. But he really believed that what he was supposed to be doing, he was doing. It was his life. Nora was 28 years old as she wrote those words. She was the staff writer for an institution publishing healthcare literature, and she'd previously worked as an editor of a corporation publishing national magazines. And she expected that when she entered into the work life, that her work would give her as much meaning as her father's work gave to him. But it didn't. This is what she said. I have my own office. I have a secretary. If I want a bookcase, I get a bookcase. If I want a file, I get a file. If I want to stay at home and work, I can stay at home and work. This is the most comfortable job I've ever had in my life and yet it's absolutely despicable. It's one thing to work to your limits as a waitress because you end up with a bad back. It's another thing to work to your limits doing writing and editing because you end up with a sharper mind. It's a joy here of all places where I expected to put the energy and the enthusiasm and the gifts that I may have to work, it just isn't happening. They expect less than you can offer. Token labor. What writing you do is written to order. When I go for a job interview, I say, sure, I can bring you samples, but the ones I'm most proud of are the ones the institution has never, ever published. It's so demeaning to be there and not to be challenged. It's humiliation because I feel I'm being forced into doing something I would never do of my own free will. It's really not a period in hang-up. It's not that I want to be persecuted. It's simply that I know I'm vegetating and being paid to do exactly that. It's possible for me to sit here and read my books, but then you walk out with no sense of satisfaction, with no sense of legitimacy. 
I'm being had. Somebody has bought the right to you for eight hours a day, and the manner in which they use you is completely at their discretion. Do you know what I mean? I feel like I'm being pimped for, and it's not my style. And then she says, for all that was good about my father's vocation, he showed me that it was possible to fuse your life to your work. His home was also his work. A parish is no different from an office because it's the whole countryside. There's nothing I would enjoy more than a job that was so meaningful to me that I brought it home. Those are powerful words, aren't they? See, for some people, work just doesn't work. And there's far more people that identify with Nora's story than is typically reflected in those positive sermons on work. Not everyone, you see, can identify with what the late Steve Jobs in a 2005 Stanford commencement speech stated. Jobs said this, you've got to find what you love. Your work is going to fill a large part of your life, and the only way to be truly satisfied is to do what you believe is great work. And the only way to do great work is to do what you love. I'm sure we all believe that that's true. But it's fair to say that most of the sermons on work take that line. And there's nothing wrong with taking that line as long as we acknowledge two things. Firstly, a lot of people work out of necessity in jobs that do not reflect what they believe to be their call in life. The fact is two-thirds of the American workforce are the working class. Many in that number identify with Nora's story. And if all we ever do is talk about the purpose of work, we are guilty of neglecting the scores of people who carry Christ into work that is less than ideal and into less than ideal situations. We are missing, therefore, an incredible opportunity to bring a message of hope and life to millions and millions and millions of people in this nation's workforce. At Central, we exist to amplify the hope and life of Jesus to all people, the ones for whom work is working and the ones for whom work is not. Second, all of us have bad days at the office, don't we? We're tackling this theme today because when that time comes, when work isn't working for you, we want you to be able to handle it wisely. See, this is the truth. No matter what we do, there will be days when work simply isn't working. There are days when the blue-collar blues shout as loudly as the white-collar whines. There are days when the bank teller and the hotel clerk will feel that they're caged in. There will be days where the steel worker and the factory line worker will see themselves as nothing more than a mule. There'll be days when the receptionist sees herself as nothing more than a pigeon carrier. There will be days when the migrant farmhand sees themselves as less than human. There will be days when the fast food worker sees themselves at the bottom of the food chain. There are even days when the high fashion model sees themselves as nothing more than an object. There are days when the homemaker sees themselves as worthless because they don't bring in a paycheck and the bank balance for the family is tight yet again. Let's go into the Bible. There are days when fishermen feel that they are useless at their job because the fish aren't biting. That was Peter, James, Andrew, and John's experience when the novice Jesus walked along the shore and told them to throw the net on the other side at the wrong time of day. 
There were days when, for the prophet Jonah, for example, his boss asked him to do a job that cut against every value that he ever held so dear. And in the case of the prophet Elijah, there was a day when the opposition seemed to be winning and all he wanted to do was to run and hide. You see, it doesn't matter what you do. There are days when work just doesn't work. And the obvious question in all of this is, what on earth do we do when work isn't working? What do we do? What I want to do this morning is just offer three thoughts to that. And I think this is applicable to all of us. When work isn't working, what we do is we trade, do what we love with the idea of love what we're doing, uh, who we're doing it for. See, this whole idea is all too often that in work we find our eternal significance, but for many of us, we, we don't, we aren't. So what do you do if you're in a season when work isn't working, either periodically or that's your experience of life? What do you do? You trade this idea that my life is going to be about doing what I love with the reality that my life, in my life, I can love who I'm doing my work for. Look at the words of Paul in Colossians chapter 3. This is what he says. Whatever you do, work at it with all your heart as working for the Lord, not for human masters, since you know that you will receive an inheritance from the Lord as a reward. And then he says, it is the Lord Christ that you are serving. I love that. When work isn't working, we place our love for who we are working for above what we are doing. Now, Paul's advice is not based on natural law or reason here. He isn't saying, look, when work isn't working for you, keep your head down and go with the flow. That's not what he's saying. One commentator puts Paul's words like this. Paul bases this appeal not on the laws of nature, but on the law of the new nature. Christ, the commentator says, releases us to be truly human. When work isn't working, and Steve told us last week that work isn't a curse, Work is a privilege and a blessing. When work isn't working, we must learn to express ourselves according to the divine pattern of a life that pours itself out in love for other people. At the end of the service, we're going to spend time coming around the Lord's table. We remember the death of the Lord Jesus because he poured himself out in love for us. When work isn't working, we make Christ's example our experience we commit to picking up our cross for the sake of those we love. Now, when I started ministry, I never believed that after 25, 27 years, I would still be in ministry in a local church. See, when I was in seminary in the arrogance of youth, I, I, would quickly, I quickly discovered that a lot of the lecturers who were teaching me actually bailed out of the church. They couldn't hack the church. And, and I found it slightly ironic that I was being trained for pastoral ministry with failed pastors, by failed pastors. And it's the arrogance of youth. And I thought to myself, you know what? I don't want to be like that. So here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to go into church ministry, and I'm going to succeed at this thing. And then I'm going to go and teach in a seminary. And I will teach people off the basis of success, not failure. Arrogance of youth. Completely arrogant. I never expected when I got into church ministry to love the church as much as I do. And God worked away at that pride. But even though I love what I do, there are days when I don't like what I do. Last week I was in Southeast Asia. 
14-hour time difference, just getting through the jet lag. And as I'm getting through the jet lag, the phone goes at 1 o'clock in the morning, and it was a parishioner from the congregation. Pastor Craig? Uh, yeah. I'm like, how did he get through the little moon thing? Call twice. That's how you do that. Don't get the first time. Do the second time. It goes through. Tip for all of you. They don't answer the phone. Try it again. And even me will answer the phone. Pastor Craig, yeah, I just wanted to call you and uh, to remind you that the election is next Tuesday. I'm like, really? Yeah, next Tuesday. And I'm like, okay, I'm in Southeast Asia right now. Oh, are you having a good time? It's one o'clock in the morning. Oh, okay. But this election is really important, Pastor Craig. No, oh, I'm really sorry to bother you. It just went on. And, and so I had this conversation. Folks, please go out and vote on Tuesday. Okay, there you go. Discharge my responsibility. I put down my phone and I'm like, really? Lord, can I get back to sleep? Two hours later, the phone goes again. It must have been a little circular, I think. Pastor Craig, just wanted to give you a call and ask whether you would remind the congregation to vote on Tuesday. I'm like, you've got to be kidding me. I love what I do, but there are times when I'm in a season where work isn't working. Like when you're overseas, you're jet-lagged, and you don't sleep all night because people want you to remind the congregation that you have to vote on Tuesday. So folks, help me out here, vote on Tuesday, okay? (laughs) The point with this is, how do I deal with that frustration? There are days when I don't like my job. Another example for you, 2015, March 2015, we're starting to work towards Christmas. And we start to read the text, Brad and I, and we start to read the text, and we notice that there is a lot of displacement in the Christmas story. People moving, economic movement, social movement, even refugee movement. Well, lo and behold, in August, the Syrian refugee crisis hits, and people basically write to me all up in arms, think I'm promoting Muslims coming into our country. This happened in August. The series was planned in March. And so I'm receiving emails from people saying, hey, when the terrorist walks into Myers and blows the place up, it's all on you and Central. That's a little ridiculous, don't you think? What's the point? There are times when I really don't like what I do. But I love who I do it for. I love who I do it for. And when you shift your mind from the frustration about what you're doing and what you're experiencing in work to think about the people who are being blessed as a result of what you do, it changes your perspective. It enables you to deal with a bad day. If I start to think about my my family that are blessed as a result of what I do, the church that are blessed as a result of me giving as a result of what I do, then all of a sudden the work of my hands seems to make more sense because I know that when work isn't working, God is doing a work in me to cause me to think about something far greater, and that is the work of Christ in the world. Folks, we all get into seasons when work doesn't work. But if you're in a constant season where work doesn't reflect that eternal significance that you thought work should bring, then think about the one that you're doing it for. It is the Lord Christ that you are serving. Think about your family that are being blessed and provided for as a result of what you're doing. And what you'll witness is your mind will be transformed into that heavenly mind. Love who you're doing it for. It makes all the difference in the world. Now, the second 
part of this message. I want to focus, I want to shift gears a little bit, and I want to think about, okay, when work isn't working, what can I do to help it work? When work isn't working, what can I do to help it work? And now this is a really important point, and in sharing this, I want to implore you to listen to what I'm saying. Do not put words in my mouth. Merely listen to the words that come from them. Okay, because when work isn't working, those of us who only experience temporary occupational malaise, okay, those things that it's only a season that we're going through that make work difficult, we are challenged to do something Jesus would do for those people for whom work isn't working at all. In talking about this, I'm mindful that we're on the basis of an election, and there's a lot of talk about the middle class and the plight of the working middle class in America, and that's not what I'm doing. What I'm doing here is I'm talking to a church body saying, listen, when we witness people in a season and in a life season where work isn't working, we have a responsibility to watch out for the worker, not just the work they're doing. If you're a manager, overseeing people, if you own a company that employs people, if you have a responsibility for people. I believe the Bible asks you as a follower of Jesus to watch out for the worker, not just for the work that they're doing. Now, last week I was in Southeast Asia and Pastor Brian Bennett was there. He's a pastor of Overflow Church in Benton Harbor. That's one of our campuses. It's about 45 minutes, 55 minutes, uh, just down south from here on the bottom of the lake. Now, Brian told me that the average income in Benton Harbor is about $17,000 a year. Now, Pastor Steve uh, spoke at Benton Harbor uh, overflow in Benton Harbor a couple of weeks ago, and Steve commented how interesting it was that during the prayer time in the congregation, Brian opened it up, Pastor Brian opened it up, and he encouraged people just to, to give praise requests back in from the floor. And what Steve noticed was how many of the praise requests coming in from the congregation was, I'm thankful that I still have my job. You get an average income here of 17000 a year. There's not, that's not much, believe me. That's not much. And you've got people living in a difficult work environment where they're thanking God that they still have a job to go to. Now, Brian believes that in our nation, the economic divide is the far greater divide than the racial divide, but unfortunately, the racial tensions are masking that reality. Now, Pastor Brian's world, 45 minutes from here, I know it's neither the world any of us live in, nor is it a world with, with which most of us have ever engaged with. But the reality is, it is our country, and the reality is there are members of our own congregation who live in this exact world. This is their experience. Just after the first service, someone came up to me and said, I'm working seven days a week, all the hours that God sends, just to be able to make ends meet. This is the world that some of our people are living in. And I want to ask you just for a few moments whether you would be willing to be brave enough to open your heart and to open your eyes to feel and to see someone else's world. It may not be your world, but it's the world that they live in. And for a few moments, I, I want to try and help us feel what they feel like when they think about work. 
I want to help you see what life is like and then take you to a chapter in the Bible where one leader had the courage to look after the workers, not just the work he was responsible for doing. Now, to get you there, I want to go back to that guy, Turple Studs, with a funny name. And I want to put on the screen the words that he uses to introduce this book about work. Engage with this reality. This is what he says. This is how he starts this book. This book, being about work, is, by its very nature, about violence. To the spirit, as well as to the body. It's about ulcers, as well as accidents. It's about shouting matches as well as fist fights. It's about nervous breakdowns as well as kicking the dog around. It is above all or beneath all about daily humiliations. Now, here's the point. To survive the day is triumph enough for the walking wounded among the great many of us. For many in the working class, this is the world in which they live. It's not our world. But when God has placed us in that world, he asks us to see the plight of the worker, not just the work. Doug Mudder is a journalist who, tackling this, invites people to imagine our nation as a giant maze. Have you got the picture in your mind? Imagine the nation as a giant maze. Success in this nation, therefore, is defined as the prize you receive as you exit the maze. Meta points out that some of us are born right by the exit. It didn't take an awful lot for us to get our way out and actually find a prize, purpose, significance. Others, he points out, start in more difficult places. They can't just wander out. They have to make all of the right moves at exactly the right time. Now, the brilliance of Mudder's analogy is that what he does is he invites you and me to imagine that they're overlooking the maze. Have you got that picture? You're looking down on this maze. And that we have compassion for all of those on the inside who have such a long way to go to get the prize. Mudder says, that's the working class life in a nutshell. You're not following your bliss. You're not pursuing your calling. You're selling time for money. And the way out of the maze and the way to get your kids out of the maze is to get up every day and do something that you'd rather not do. Those are powerful words. And of course, if we're standing on the outside, we would say things like, couldn't we knock out a few walls? We're looking at this thing. We'd look at it and we say, couldn't we kind of raise the minimum wage? Why can't college be free? Now, the point is, these are all relevant conversations. These are all important conversations. And from a God's eye perspective, looking down, these kind of conversations make sense. But here's the point. Mother points out they don't help anybody on the inside of the maze right here, right now. All of these conversations are great. They need to happen, but they're not helpful if you find yourself in the middle of a maze with no way out. And folks, in this nation right now, this is what's being missed. People are being missed because there's so much focus on the conversation and the questions that we cannot be guilty of missing the people. And I sense that's what's happening in our nation to a large extent. We're too focused on the questions and we're not focused enough on the people. And I don't want you to hear this and think that I'm being political again. I'm not. I'm being pastoral. 
Just remember, Jesus got in trouble with religious leaders who he said, listen, you've taken the law of God that was designed to bless people and point out the way to people, and you've made it a burden and a noose around their neck. He didn't do that to be political. He did it because he was pastoral. The Bible says in Matthew 9, Jesus looked out and saw the people. They were harassed and helpless like, a she- like sheep without a shepherd, and his heart broke. And he said to the disciples, pray with me that the Father would send people into the harvest field. He wasn't being political. He was being pastoral. And if it is true that work isn't working for so many people, we have to look beyond the work itself and the conversation itself and the questions and the philosophy itself, and we have to remember the people because that's what Jesus would do. Now, with that in mind, I want to turn you to Nehemiah chapter 5. Nehemiah chapter 5. This is a a really convicting chapter of the Scriptures. Now, for those of you unfamiliar with the story, Nehemiah is a leader in the Old Testament who God called to rebuild uh, the wall around the city of uh, Jerusalem. Nehemiah was in exile. He was the cupbearer of the king. And uh, one day, Nehemiah heard about the plight of Jerusalem everything that had happened, a city to which in all likelihood he'd never been, and God placed a burden and a conviction in his heart and told him that he needed to rebuild the wall. The king granted him permission to go back, and he starts to rebuild the wall. And we get to Nehemiah chapter 5, and there are people for whom work isn't working. They go to Nehemiah, and they point out that the life as they know it, and the experience and paying all of these taxes that go back to the king was basically impoverishing them to such an extent that they were even at the point of selling their children into slavery because it would have been better for their children to do so. And so they appealed to Nehemiah, a leader who's got work to do. And Nehemiah, as you look at this, does three things. And I think for those of us who are trying to engage with the reality that work isn't working for a lot of people, we do well to listen to what Nehemiah is saying. The first thing Nehemiah does is, interestingly, he displays a convicting honesty in admitting his own involvement, albeit indirectly. You see, Nehemiah is there representing the king. The king uh, has burdened the people with taxes. Nehemiah is responsible partly for ensuring that that happens. He's honest in saying, look, I'm not just a part of the problem here, though. I'm also a part of the solution. And so in verses 6 to 13 of chapter 5, he actually offers some very practical, simple solutions about how to deal with this. And in doing that, he left no room for maneuvering at all. He confronted the wealthy, those who had been blessed, with a direct challenge to charity and to generosity. But thirdly, and this is where I want to go, Nehemiah sacrificed personally. He sacrificed personally. He saw the work as he's a part of a system that was actually burdening people, rightly and wrongly. He said, okay, I've got a responsibility, and I'm willing to step up and get involved in this personally. And this is what he says in verses 14 and 15. Neither I nor my brothers ate the food allotted to the governor. He had a right to, but he didn't. But the earlier governors, those preceding me, placed a heavy burden on the people and took 40 shekels of silver from them in addition to food and wine. 
Their assistants also lorded it over the people, but out of reverence for God, I did not act like that. Here's, an, here's an, the example of a man who's been entrusted with the call of God. He finds fulfillment in his work, but as he's doing his work, he recognizes that there, there are people who are burdened. There are people for whom work isn't working. He acknowledges that he's not only a part of the problem, he's a part of the solution, and he personally sacrifices in order to make sure that the people who are struggling had food to eat, had a life to live. Church, I believe all of us for whom work is working have the same responsibility. This chapter, you see, is so powerful when it's viewed within the struggle of economically challenged families, those for whom work isn't working. And we have those in Holland as well. On a Water's Edge Sunday a few months ago, Pastor Micah addressed the challenge of Alice families in our county. Alice stands for Asset Limited Income Constrained Employees. Micah tells me that there are over 4,000 impoverished or considered impoverished in Ottawa County alone. This isn't the other side of the world. This is right here at home. These are people for whom work is not working. In the elementary school my son attends, Jefferson, 70 to 75% of the children are on free school lunches. 70 to 75%. And as we look at this, we are right to ask questions. We are right to challenge the system. We are right to engage the system. It is the right thing to enter into high-level conversations about what we do about affordable housing, what we do about getting families out of poverty. And these are conversations we are having at the highest level. But at the same time, we cannot be so focused on the high-level conversations that we miss the plight of the people who are currently in that situation. So what do we do? Well, our hand-to-hand ministry feeds 400 children a week with meals outside of school to help that cause, 400 meals a week. Our Christmas store offers a simple way for economically challenged families to have a Christmas to remember. And we make that possible by encouraging you to pick up a green bag when you leave this place and actually go and buy gifts so that those people who are economically challenged can have a Christmas to remember. And we are saying in doing this, not simply that, hey, the best thing about Christmas is a gift a child receives, but we also make sure as a part of the Christmas store, we tell these families about the greatest gift of all, the gift of Jesus. You know why we're doing this? We're doing this because we recognize that we have to see behind the work in the system to the people that are struggling, to the people themselves. And so we ask you to step up and to help And I pray that for those of you that haven't picked up a green bag, haven't volunteered to serve at the Christmas store, that you won't leave this place without doing so. We have that responsibility. We cannot close our eyes to the plight of the people around us. And let me just say this. I am thrilled, proud even, hopefully in a godly way, to be a part of a church that does that. To be a part of a church that invests so generously and so liberally into the practical needs of people on the outside. And we do this over and over and over again. And you know what? So we should. So we should. We cannot ignore the plight of the people. And if we are going to be examples of Jesus, we need to follow Nehemiah's example and look out for the workers, not just for the work. Now, let me also say this. I also believe that for those of you who are here, and I'm describing your reality pretty well, you're living paycheck to paycheck, work isn't working for you, 
I believe you have responsibility too. At Central, our desire is for you not to join our church, but for you to become a part of our family. Because here's the reality, realistically, the best way to find help in seasons when work isn't working is to find the support you need. And you can find that support, not in an institution, you find that support in a faith family. So for you, I wanna give you this challenge. When work isn't working, join a family, not a church. Join a family, not a church. You see, Central, at Central, we are building a family, not a church. And our motivation at Central can be summed up, I believe, with the words of Paul in Acts chapter 20. He says this, in everything I did, I showed you that by this kind of hard work, we must help the weak. Remembering the words of the Lord Jesus himself, who said, it is more blessed to give than to receive. Sometimes it is hard work to help the people for whom work is not working. But at Central, we take that responsibility seriously. And I'm proud to be part of a church that does that. But the solution to this, if you're in that season, is not to look for help from an institution, because an institution can't help you, but family and people can. Let me say this, if you're in a season where work isn't working, it's a chore, not a blessing for you. The reality is that there are three main issues that you are facing. The transportation issue, the housing issue, and the childcare issue. At the heart of making work work, there are those struggles. Childcare, transportation, and housing. If you're struggling with those things, the, the solution is not an institution, it's a relationship. One of the hardest things for Vipka and I about following the call of God is that it has led us so far away from family. Complicated is that scenario by the fact that Vipka is German and I'm British and our family live in two different places so far away from where we have ever been called to serve. But the reality is family is often the first point of call, especially when the car breaks down, the heating quits, the pipes leak, and the babysitter cancels. These pressures are real pressures of working families. And I want you to know that Vipka and I get that because they've been our challenges as well. I wasn't always a pastor of a large church. Many of you know my story. I grew up in government-subsidized housing. I received free school meals at school. The government paid for my college degree. Yes, you heard that. The government paid for me to go to seminary. My first car cost $400. It had so many miles and it broke down so many times that I learned an awful lot about changing starter motors during that season. When Vipka and I were first married, we earned 25,000 gross. That means before taxes, and taxes were higher in Europe, and the house prices in London where we lived were ridiculously expensive. We owned one car, couldn't afford two, we lived in a tiny home where if our neighbor coughed, we could hear it. Vipka had to work by cleaning schools at four o'clock in the morning for us to be able to make ends meet. Do you think she found a calling in that? That was a season when work wasn't working for us. We know what it's like to live paycheck to paycheck. 
And yet we're here today. Why? I think one reason for that is Vipka and I have always committed to work hard and to do what God has given us to do to the best of our ability and faithfully. That's my responsibility. But another reason that we're here today is because Vipka and I never, ever saw ourselves as working for a church. We always saw ourselves as belonging to a family. Belonging to a family. So what we did is we didn't just do our job at the church, the job that I was paid for. We ultimately made a commitment to join a family. And so we trusted our family to a group of people, commonly called a small group. And we trusted the family of God and invested in people and they invested in us. And so when our car broke down, someone in our group stepped up. When the plumbing leaked, someone in our group came and helped. When the babysitter canceled, we had people to call. When money was tight, there were meals that were provided. Why? Because I belong to a family. Because I belong to a group of people. And the reality and the difficult reality of a church of this size, it is so easy for you to come in here, to worship in here, and to never step into where the power and the provision of God is truly experienced. And it isn't through an institution. It's through a family. And let me encourage you, if you are here today and work isn't working, the solution to this is not to apply for benevolence month after month after month. The solution to this is for you to step in and make the church the family of God that it truly was designed to be. The church doesn't work when the church is only ever about the show on a Sunday. Church works when the body of Christ acts like the family of God that it truly is. And so if you're here today and you're struggling, I, I want to encourage you, take the next step and step into the family of God and allow the family of God to follow the leading of the Spirit of God and do the work that Christ wants to be done in you and for you. So here's the bottom line with all of this. We get work working by opening our hearts, opening our homes, and even our hands. If there's a prayer that I have for our church, this would be it. In seasons where it was tight for us, I would always go back to this psalm, Psalm 90 verse 17. It's meant a lot to me for many years. May the favor of the Lord our God rest on us. If you're struggling today, pray this prayer. May the favor of the Lord our God rest on us. And believe this. Pray this and believe this. God, won't you establish the work of our hands for us? And this is so important, the psalmist repeats it. Establish the work of our hands. One commentator, Mo Winkle, says about this, the main point of Psalm 90 is not the hymn, praising the eternity of Yahweh. It's not the contemplation of the shortness of human life, but the prayer for the eternal God not to overlook the short life of humanity and let it pass away in misfortune, but rather to have the mercy for God to have mercy upon his congregation, which consists of short-lived people, short-lived people. Friends, this life is short, 
None of us should live it in misery. And because of the church of Jesus Christ, we don't have to. But getting involved in a family takes work. And if work isn't working for you, the first work that I can encourage you to do is step beyond a Sunday and step into the real community of the church because that's where the needs are met. It's through people in this church who are willing to open their hearts, their hands, and even their homes to you. That's the type of church we are. And if you're struggling today, let me encourage you, take that bold step and get connected with the life of God in the church.